Valentine's Day in New Jersey was pretty sweet for Seton Hall. But oh, it left a bad taste in Rutgers' mouth as the Scarlet Knights were stunned at home by Nebraska. In my mind, that was the worst loss of the season for the Scarlet Knights. A quad three loss on your home court to one of the worst teams in the Big Ten. No ifs, ands, or buts. You have to win that game. They got beaten every phase on their home court. So we'll get to the good, the bad, and we'll go around the tri-state and talk St. John's, Ryder, and Fordham too. Plus, Mike Crispino, the voice of UConn men's basketball, will join me later to talk about the Huskies and preview Saturday's big game against Seton Hall. So let's begin with the good at the Prudential Center. And I say good because Seton Hall won. Now, I know some fans would say it was ugly or even sloppy, and the net would agree because even though Seton Hall won, the Pirates' net went down from 62 to 66. Seton Hall was up 12 with six minutes to go. I looked over to the guy next to me, and I said, Ted, this is where Seton Hall needs to put this game away. Of course, you know what happened after that. They didn't put it away. They let Primo Spears and Georgetown shoot their way back into the game. Don't give up threes. There's a three. There's another three. I think Georgetown had missed their first 12 or 13 threes before they suddenly decided to, oh, oh, we're shooting at that hoop. Of course, Seton Hall was more than happy to let them shoot. So I know you go through ups and downs. But in the end, Seton Hall made seven out of eight free throws in the final 40 seconds. Yes, they did shoot well in the final minute. They hung on for dear life to win by eight, and they won. Now, if it sounds like Seton Hall fans are disappointed with that, then shame on you. But I get it, and so does their coach, Shaheen Holloway, who opened his press conference shaking his head, saying this. It matters, right? Well, obviously, you want to get the win. That's, a, you know, that's important. But, no, it definitely matters how you, how you, how you play. And, you know, I, I didn't like us tonight at all. Um, you know, it's, I don't understand why, you know, you come out like that with such an important game. At home, I get it was an early tip, right? And, you know, like I told these guys, it doesn't really matter who's in the stands. There's, if it's packed or it's not, like we got to bring our own juice. And um, we, we just didn't have it. I thought Femi had it most of the night. I thought Casey had it as spurts. Tyrese had it, but we didn't have it as a group. All right, so who does it fall on? Does it fall on the coach? Does it fall on the players? I think at some point, the players in that room need to take accountability and accept how they performed out there. I think Shaheen Holloway had his team ready to go, but sometimes you can't get into the head of a 19, 20-year-old, 21-year-old kid and figure out what happened. All I know is this. I thought Tyrese Samuel played one of his best games of the season. When he gets a double-double, Seton Hall has a better chance of winning. He had 15 and 10, his second straight double-double of the season. Al Dawes had 20 points. Oh, by the way, that's his fourth 20-point game of the season. I thought Casey and Defo woke up late in that game. He was in double figures for the first time in four games, and that could be a good sign for Seton Hall. And Femi Odakale, who still, to me, struggles losing the ball when he drives, dribbling it off his foot, missing reverse layups. 
he still gives a great effort on the defensive end and ended up with a career-high 10 rebounds. So there were a lot of positives. And Shaheen Holloway has absolutely squeezed the most out of this team. The Pirates are winning games. They are 8-0 against Georgetown, Butler, DePaul, and St. John's. That counts for something. They've beaten all the bottom feeders and have not slipped up once against those teams. Providence has. Xavier has. UConn has. They all have. The problem for Seton Hall is they don't play those teams anymore. All right? They're one in seven against the rest of the Big East. And that's who they're playing the next four games. Three are against top 25 teams. That means Seton Hall has an opportunity for three quad one wins. Look at it as a glass is half full. It begins Saturday at UConn. Then they're home to Xavier, home to Nova. All right, I'm going to play the game. Win your home games. Beat Xavier at home. Beat Nova. Get Dre Davis back to being healthy because he is a, a huge missing piece for Seton Hall. And I believe if Dre Davis played against Villanova, his toughness, his tenacity, his leadership, his intangibles, his nine points a game, his heart, his hustle, his physicality wills Seton Hall to a win and they beat Villanova. But that's hypothetical. I get it. So first and foremost, Seton Hall needs him to return to the lineup against UConn. All right. Win your home games and then somehow find a way to win one of those two road games at number 20 UConn or at number 24 Providence. The odds are against them. That's less than 50%. Really, it's, it's they probably have like a 30% chance of doing that. And that might be generous. But hey, stranger things have happened. Find a way to win three of those, and Seton Hall should find itself on the right side of the NCAA tournament bubble. But they need to come out with more energy. They need to come out with more passion, not make excuses about fans that don't show up. And they didn't make excuses to their credit. Shaheen Holloway even said it. The player said it after the game. We need to find our own energy. Let's see if they can find it at number 20, UConn. We will preview that game with the voice of UConn men's basketball, Mike Crispino, in a bit. So that was the good. Now for the bad. Or was it the ugly? I said it before. Rutgers cannot lose at home to Nebraska. I know Nebraska's playing well. But look at their numbers. They had won two road games. They had won two road games all year at Creighton. I still don't know how they won that game because Creighton was at full strength, although that Creighton team is a lot different than the Creighton team now. But a win is a win. So they did win at Creighton, and then they won at Minnesota, but everyone's winning at Minnesota, all right? And they needed overtime to win it. Nebraska had won two road games all year before coming into Jersey Mike's arena and shooting the lights out. If I didn't know any better, I would have thought Iowa came back. All right. And not Nebraska. But to their credit, they hit 12 three pointers. Rutgers has allowed a team to make 12 threes 
four times this year. All losses. Nebraska shot 58%. That cannot happen. And afterwards, Steve Peichel took the blame for his team's poor defensive showing. They were better than us today. I, I You know, it's on me. I got to get us to play Rutgers defense. We certainly didn't tonight. I think this is the first time we've given up over 50 percent from the for the game in a long time but you know they made some tough shots they made it hard for us I thought we had some chances too but turnovers missing free throws some layups you know didn't give us a point you know an opportunity to kind of turn the tide but defensively just you know it's on me very disappointed in how we defended you know and I got to do a better job and I got to make sure we get back to playing, you know, the kind of defense that we need to play in, in, in a great league against some, you know, really good shooting teams. Look, Peichel has to find a way. These players, without Moat Mag, without one of their top defenders, he's not coming back. Find a way to get it done on both ends of the court. Teams are coming into your building and shooting the lights out. Kasei Tomanaga, 22 points. He had 17 in the second half. And a big game for C.J. Wilcher as well with 17 points, who played at Roselle Catholic and St. Benedict's. I'm sure it was a happy homecoming for C.J. But look, outside of Andre Hyatt, who had a career-high 24, no one did anything in this game. Teams are keying on Camp Spencer. They're putting longer athletic guys on him. They're forcing Mulcahy and McConnell to shoot from the outside. And if those guys aren't hitting... I mean, Mulcahy, he only took three shots in this game. Granted, he had 12 assists, but you need more. Here's the schedule at Wisconsin. I mean, Rutgers has lost three games in a row. Now they're playing a desperate Wisconsin team, a team that just beat Michigan in an emotional game. The Badgers are desperate. They're on the NCAA tournament bubble. They'll be at home. That's not going to be easy. Then they're home to Michigan at Penn State, an improved Penn State team that just knocked off Illinois. They're at Minnesota, and they're home to Northwestern. And we remember that game. That was the Cam Spencer three game. Northwestern will be out for revenge. And outside of Indiana, Northwestern might be playing the best of any team in the Big Ten. They're in second place with Indiana. They just won at Wisconsin and at Ohio State and beat number one Purdue. So who's playing better than Northwestern? Look, Rutgers will make the NCAA tournament. If not, it will be the biggest collapse in program history. They need to right the ship. They need to get well. They need to get their confidence back. They need to figure out the defensive assignments. They need to get together, whether it's the players themselves or the coaches, take a big look in the mirror and decide where they can go from here. It has to start with Wisconsin. Start playing well and find a way to get a win. Every loss drops you to another point in that NCAA tournament line. You don't want to fall into that 8-9 matchup. That's the worst. And Rutgers is trending in that direction. Five games left to get it right. All right, let's turn our attention now to UConn, a team that has been so good for the early part of the season and then so bad for a few weeks in January. 
Have they turned the corner? Are they back? Here to answer those questions and more is the voice of UConn men's basketball, football, and baseball, the one and only Mike Crispino. Mike, it's a pleasure to finally meet you after all these years and have you on the podcast. Well, Brian, I appreciate it. Uh, knowing that you're a Hartford area guy and went to South Catholic uh, brings back a lot of competitive memories. I went to East Catholic till we were across the river, but we always got up for South Catholic matchups. Always. That was the best matchup for us. East Catholic Northwest mattered, but Northwest Catholic, but not as much as East South. For some reason, there was a lot of crossover. People knew each other. Uh, those are great times up in our area. Um, for, for basketball, especially, but football too. And baseball, I recall playing against Randy Levine, who was a UConn guy, eventually pitcher, hitter, player, excellent basketball player too. And I still see Randy at the UConn games. Uh, I just remember facing him and, and having trepidation. <laughs> Am I going to get a bat on the ball with this guy and playing in, you know, parks in Hartford uh, where South had to play their games, which were not very good. But we had uh, we had some tremendous athletic uh, competition with those guys and uh, never forget it. And I still see guys like Fran Laffin and other South Catholic stars actually was playing hoop with Fran Laffin at, at a local gym, St. Joseph's College, uh, for a few years uh, up until maybe a couple of years ago. So I saw a lot of South. I see a lot of South Catholic guys all the time. Yeah. And Fran was one of my teachers at South Catholic and. And now I believe he's teaching at Northwest Catholic now that South is closed. But yes. I want to talk about your career. This is fascinating to me, Mike, and, and for the listeners out there in the in the Hartford area. What did you play? So it sounds like you played baseball and basketball and, you know, going up against Randy Levine, who ended up starring at UConn in baseball and basketball. That, that's quite a matchup for you. Yeah, well, I was a football guy and a baseball guy. I wanted to play basketball, but our basketball team was – just too good. I couldn't make the grades. So I took the winners off and played uh, football. And in baseball, I played for Tom, uh, Jim Penders, who was had just come on legend. Yeah, like, yeah. And then became a legend, won, you know, multiple uh, state championships. I still see him. I still talk to him. And of course, I cover his son, Jim Jr. now for UConn as their head coach. So it's been a, an interesting, uh, long <laughs> career. And these guys stick around. Uh, it, it's a real pleasure to still be around with, with Jim Pender. So uh, that's kind of been something that has been a, a real motivation to me to see guys like that still around coming to games and, and talking sports with, with people like that. Yeah, you remember your roots, Mike, and your career has come for full circle. You started at Channel 30, WVIT, and it's in West Hartford, but we say it's in the Hartford market. And I remember watching you as a, as a teenager doing sports casts and and saying, hey, I, I'd like to be like that guy someday. And you did a fantastic job there. So what was it like working in your home area for Channel 30 when you started out? Well, it was it was my first real job. I had worked for ESPN back in the early 80s when they first got on the air. And they, they really had no idea what they were doing over in Bristol. So <laughs> they hired a few of us to do these, uh, these little uh, insert uh, mini sports casts, you know, during the pro the, the tape programming that they had on the air at the time. And, uh, but there were some big time guys there at the time. Uh, Chris Berman had just started there. Uh, just a bunch of different guys, Tom Meese, sure. uh, Bob Lee, people like that were around the office. Our office was like 10 by 12. <laughs> we had like four desks and eight chairs at the time. So, uh, and I just I got hired because I had a friend who was working there and she told me that they were kind of look for 
some on-air people to do these uh, these little mini sports casts. And, you know, what I want to do it. And I sure I'll try it. I was up in New Hampshire working for a radio station. I had started a radio station up in Concord up there <clears throat> and I'd been their music director and their, and their publicist for, you know, a year or so. So I was looking to maybe get out of New Hampshire and try something new. And ESPN was right on the, you know, the cusp of starting to grow uh, back in the early 80s. So that's where I started. And uh, I was able to get a, t a tape out of there. After about six months, they decided they weren't going to do what they were going to do. A couple of us left and a um, couple of us uh, didn't make the grade. And so I went over to Channel 30 and brought the tape over there. And that was uh, that was a real positive because they, they were at that time, Bristol was starting to become an entity. You know, ESPN was starting to become known. And that helped me get a, a job with my uh, with my news director. Uh, Mildred McNeil was her name at uh, at uh, Channel 30. And she was looking for a local person. You know, that was always a sales pitch for, for local television, local people who know what the local you know market's all about. And so that's why they hired me. And, uh, you know, started on the weekends, eventually went to the weekdays. And that that led to, you know, other stuff in Boston, eventually in New York. Yeah. You know, you you go to Boston after that and you're calling Celtics games as well. You're a sportscaster. You're calling Celtics games with a legendary Bob Cousy. And then eventually you get to New York in the early 90s and you're at MSG Network, the hub of sports and entertainment in, in New York City. And then you're calling Knicks games. And wow, to work for two legendary teams like that in two of the biggest markets in the country, Mike, that's got to be quite quite the thrill. Yeah, it was. I mean, <clears throat> you don't get a chance to really enjoy it while you're doing it because you're doing it and you're you're concerned about doing a great job and keeping the job. But no, I got a break in Boston. The news director gave me a call, Jack Fitzgerald. Uh, he had to replace a guy at, at, at his sports director. And uh, I don't know how, you know, believe me, you know how this works. You don't know how or why someone decides they're going to they're going to talk to you because they saw your tape. I have no idea. I'm in my 30s. I mean, I'm not that experienced. Maybe I got five years on camera and I'm going up to, you know, talk to these guys who were in maybe in my mind, the biggest market in our area and maybe in the country, one of the top five in the country. So mm -hmm. I didn't I had no idea what it would be like. So they hire me. And, uh, you know, the great news is they're doing the Celtics road games at the time. Sport, uh, Sports Channel is doing the uh, Celtic uh, home games. So we had the contract for the road game. So I got a couple of years of uh, Celtic play-by-play uh, -play on the road, which I, you know, I had I had some experience with play-by-play, -play, but not on that level. So again, you're you're up against uh, your own mind. Am, am I up to this? Am I capable of this? Are people going to, you know, accept me, et cetera, et cetera? Because Boston was a market that was full of personalities that had been around for a long time. So they trusted all those people, and I was a new newcomer that nobody really knew. So that's what concerned me at the time. But you're doing the Celtics, Larry Bird's running around and Robert Parrish and Kevin McHale and Reggie Lewis, and they had good teams and people paid attention. And uh, that that helped me kind of get over my <laughs> concern or worry about doing a good job because I'm like, listen, people want to watch the players. They want to see what's going on. They don't care that much what I'm saying. Mm. If I do the nuts and bolts correctly, I think they'll accept me. And so that worked. It worked out fine. And we, uh, Bob Cousy was great because he was a Celtic legend. Obviously he knew everything about the franchise. He was a player for a long time. He broadcaster for a long time. 
Uh, everyone respected him. So I deferred to him quite a bit. I said, I'm working with Bob Cousy. He's, he's in the Hall of Fame. He's probably the most famous basketball player in New England history. You know what I mean? So I, I felt like he could carry me and it worked. And uh, and we had a great we had a great run for a couple of years. And then the contract came up and the, the Celtics uh, jumped to Channel 25. And the way it works in that in the business is you're not always going with the team. The team might bring their broadcast to some other channel where they have somebody else they're interested in having uh, do the games. And they, they put Tommy Heinsohn on, who was just leaving CBS at the time with Kuzi. So they had two guys who were sort of analysts calling games. It was not a great combination, except that they were two great guys. You know, Heinsohn and Kuzi were legends. So everyone accepted them. Uh, but meanwhile, that that sort of sent me on my road to new york because it, it, in boston at gannett all i was doing was a 10 o'clock news i just needed more to do and uh, talk radio hadn't really started in boston yet it was it was like mid a mid to late 80s somewhere in there mm -hmm. early 90s and talk radio hadn't taken off in boston at all i would say if that you know if the celtics celtics had left gannett when i was there and gone to channel 25 like in 95, I probably would have been in Boston the rest of my career because I would probably would have got a job at a radio station as a talk guy doing the 10 o'clock news as well. And the combination keeps you going, you know, because you know how it is. You got to you got to be involved in a lot of areas if you're going to be in this business. And talk about your career at, at MSG in New York. I mean, you go from, like I said, one major market to the number one market. You go from Bob Cousy on your side to Walt Clyde Frazier on your side, another Hall of Famer. That That's pretty darn good right there, Mike. And at any point, are you saying, you know, this is pretty cool. I'm sitting next to these guys talking basketball that I grew up, you know, idolizing and knowing about. Yeah, it was, listen, it was, it was cool every day. Trust me, not, not just Walt Frazier, but everybody, you know, John Davidson was a legend in hockey yeah. and, um, and people like that. I think about, you know, the baseball guys we had, Jim Cott, Ken Singleton, uh, these guys in my mind were some of the best in the in the world at doing what they do in terms of their broadcast work. So I had an Al Trotwood was a fantastic host for us. And I, I kind of filled in, I was Al's understudy, so to speak. Al would miss 40, 50 games a year because of conflicts and vacations. And so I stepped into his shoes and, and that was a tremendous boost for me because it gave me an opportunity to do something I had never done, which was location hosting, uh, whether it be a Yankee stadium or Madison square garden or wherever we were on the road. So uh, those experiences all build up. They build you up as a, as a broadcaster. So you, nothing bothers you. Nothing worries you. You don't feel as if, you know, you're going to fail anymore. You always feel like, oh, I've done that before. I can do that. I can do this. I can do that. And, and eventually there's nothing you can't do. So, um, you know, just working with all those great uh, analysts and hosts uh, and anchored people uh, just made me better because every day I went to work, I'm working with the best in the, in the world. I mean, guys, I, I know ESPN was taken off at that point, late 80s, early 90s. Uh, right through the 90s, ESPN went through a, a bunch of different uh, iterations. They became a monster, you know, the worldwide leader, they call themselves. And they had great people on their air, too. But I feel like in New York, the people I worked with were the best, the best in the business. I, I just had such a fabulous opportunity to learn from guys, and, you know, people I worked with that uh, if I didn't go to New York, I don't think that would have happened. So, you know, sometimes it's serendipity. Sometimes I had a friend of mine working at MSG for years. He was a East Catholic guy, actually, Leon Schwire, 
God rest his soul. He's a great guy. And he brought me down there. He, uh, we started a, a sports desk. They called it. Uh, and, I love and, sports desk. I yeah, watch no, you, Bob Page, Bill Daughtry. I, I always no. watched. We had some good people. There's Bob Page, another guy who was yeah. a, a giant, I thought, you know. So, yeah, there was a new studio show. They brought me in as part of that. And uh, and people paid attention. You know, that's what we knew that. We knew that whatever we did, people were paying attention because it's New York. And New York sports fans are unique. They're on top of everything. We got nine professional teams. Don't even include Rutgers, St. John's is you know, high level college programs, <clears throat> you got nine pro teams. So there's never, there's never not something going on of import that, that your fan base and your, your, the folks that watch you on broadcasts are really into. Could be Jets fans, could be Giants fans, could be Yankee fans. You know, we had the Yankees for 10 years. So I worked with them. And so all of that adds up to, you just keep getting better and better because you're, you're getting opportunities and they're throwing stuff at you. I remember doing the West Westminster dog show, the Colgate track and field games, things I didn't know much about, but it makes you learn. I mean, I got into tennis because we used to have the Virginia Slims championships at, at the garden. I got to work with Bud Collins, who was a fabulous tennis guy. Sure. Virginia Wade. Uh, and that's when I would say to myself, I can't believe I'm doing this <laughs> because I'd say, I'd say, there's no way in, a, in 40 years of being in this business, I would end up doing these things, but they, you know, the events came to the garden and, uh, and we did them, we hosted them. And so a lot of times I got those assignments because the other guys were still on the Knicks and the Rangers, whatever they were doing. So that allowed me being a staff member there to, to have opportunities to do stuff that I never would have been able to do uh, if I hadn't been there. And and uh, in, the, in the era we were in, when MSG was trying everything, you know, we had a Jets Journal show, we had a Giants football show, uh, we had these Yankee magazine shows, which I hosted. We had a at the Garden show, which was just about the Garden and everything that went on in that building. And at the time, it was such an exciting time with so much going on, concert wise and event wise. And I would do that show. So all that stuff adds up, and and you become you just become better at it, and, and that's how you stay at the level I was at for all those years, because you're getting better with what you're doing. You're getting opportunities you know, opportunities are everything. And it sounds like you're, you know, listen, Mike, you are a professional, no matter what you've done. If you haven't done it before, you figured out how to do it. And, and you know, that, that stands the test of time to what you've done. And now you find yourself back in your home state where you grew up in Connecticut. I know you had to stop at St. John's in between there, but your career, your life has come full circle. Now you're calling games for the University of Connecticut where the entire state follows UConn men's basketball. And they're so passionate about it. What is it like being with that program, uh, being around Dan Hurley and the guys and, and calling games in your home state for the State University of Connecticut? Well, you know, Bill Raftery came up and did a couple games at the XL Center this year, and he said, you know what, this place, these people are all about this team. And I, and I didn't even think about it. I, I just do it. But he was right. He knew that when you uh, are doing this uh, for UConn, <clears throat> pretty much every sports fan, college in the state, and there is no pro team, is rooting for your franchise. So, yes, there's a lot of people who pay attention, a lot of people who care. So that motivates you, too. I mean, when you know that some of the toughest jobs you have in broadcasting when you, if you happen to be working for a team where the level of interest is low, you know, they're not winning, they're not, they're not succeeding and people don't care anymore. And it, it becomes, 
the worst sound you can have is silence in an arena, right? You got to have some something in the arena, even if they're booing. And they booed the Knicks a lot in the last 10 years, five of the years <laughs> I did them. So uh, all that being said, yes, the, you know, being able to work for the franchise that is the franchise in this state is, is good because uh, you, it, it gets you fired up every time you go to work. Every time you go to work, we're going to play Seton Hall on, at noon on Saturday. I'm fired up because everyone else is fired up. I can't walk in that arena and be half, half of my energy be somewhere else at all. I got to be 100% there because I know everybody in the building has got 100% interest in what's going on. So, uh, again, that's another way that you stay at a high level in terms of your energy and your approach and your delivery and your broadcast skills, all that stuff rises up to a certain level when you're around an environment where everybody cares. So that's been the experience. I, this is the fifth year I've done these guys. Uh, radio, you know, I've done radio the last about 10 years of my career, mostly TV before that, but um, it's different on radio because people don't see what's going on. So you got to describe everything that's happening, but there are people that pay attention. I mean, when I was doing the Knicks in New York, we knew, the cab drivers were always listening, you know, and there were people in their cars. There's, you know, 15 million people in the metro area there. So we always knew someone was listening. And here we know that people are listen, listening when they go out to the grocery store, when they go wherever they may be going and they're not in the arena. So uh, it's a responsibility. It's a, it's kind of interesting because it keeps you on your toes. It keeps you doing the best job you can do. You can't mail it in. You just can't do it because, you know, all those people are kind of depending on you. Yeah, you're 100% right. They're they're going to Stu Leonard's for some organic eggs and <laughs> they're listening to the game cuz they don't want to miss a second of it. That's yeah. UConn. They didn't they might not have gone to University of Connecticut. They might might have gone to St. Joe's in in West Hartford like you said, but they yeah. know UConn and follow it. So what do you make of this team, Mike? What do you yeah. make of of what they've done this year? People of course put them up on a pedestal. They were going to the final four. Back in November, if you listen to all the UConn fans and and then they came back to earth in January, who is the real UConn team? I can't tell you, Brian. I, I, I've been thinking about it a lot lately. I look at them statistically. Uh, I'm just going to read off some of this stuff. I mean, they're number one in field goal defense. They're, th they're third in scoring. You know, they're fifth in field goal percentage. They're second in three-point percentage. They're first in three-point defense, second in rebounding margin. They get the third best assist mark in the league. They're fourth in assist to turnover. I mean, they're top five in mm -hmm. all these categories. So why are they just fifth or sixth in the conference? I think the schedule worked against them a little. They got a lot of road games in a row. The Seton Hall game, the first time around, was a real backbreaker because – they had the game won. Seton Hall scored on the last play of the game and won the game. Uh, that hurt. St. John's upset them at Hartford. UConn didn't play well enough. St. John's played maybe their best game of the year. Sure. Those, those two are the ones that stick out for me. They've lost three by three points or less uh, to Xavier at Creighton the other day and at Seton Hall, obviously. And they're two and five against the ranked teams in the Big East. So that's not good enough. You know, if you are, if you are a legit, you know, quote unquote, second weekend team. Those aren't good numbers. You got to be better. And I don't know. I don't know if they'll get better, but they've got an opportunity. They got Seton Hall. They got Providence at home, which is a, a top 20 team. Uh, then they got St. John's at the Garden and then they got DePaul and they finished with Villanova. They got an opportunity 
to get themselves maybe all five of those. And if they are able to do that, then they get to 24 wins and they're 24 and seven, they'd probably be a fourth seed. And you got to like their chances of getting to maybe the second weekend, but they haven't been the same team, as you say, from, uh, I mean, November, December, they were best team in the country. I mean, they beat, right. all, they beat all comers. They beat them by double digits. Um, <clears throat> but then they lost twice to Xavier. So I, I don't know what to make of them. I, I think, they've been exposed a little bit in terms of how you can defend them and keep them from scoring 80 points uh, by, by letting Andre Jackson shoot it whenever he wants to. Uh, they've been laying off Andre for about six games. Now Xavier's done it pack in the middle, trying to make it a, you know, a, a some kind of a jam fest down there for Adama Sanogo. So he can't get any, any room to work. So UConn's in a, in a, they're in a transition. They got to change what they're doing a little bit to make it work for these next five games and to go into the big East conference tournament and, and win some games there. Cause they've only got, I think they got in the semifinals with Dan Hurley last year uh, before losing. So, um, you know, anything's possible, but it, it all could turn out to be nothing, which would be a real bummer because you start 14 and zero and you're number one, number two in the country and you're beating teams like they did early you got to say to yourself, how, how did we just lose seven of 12? They just lost seven of 12 games. And this is the critical part of the season, right? You're playing on the road against Creighton, playing on the road to finish at Villanova at St. John's. You know, you got to prove you can win on the road. They haven't, they've done that a couple of times. Uh, they've won a lot of games at home. They've beaten Marquette at home. They've beaten Creighton at home. Uh, but I, I still believe the strength of a team is shown when you win on the road. And can they do that these last five games? I don't know. And Right. And and you put those five games out there, Mike, but I'm going to play devil's advocate. St. John's is suddenly finding itself. They won two in a row. They beat Providence. Villanova is healthy for the first time all season. They're hungry to kind of prove that, you know, they can play at a high level as well. So there's no gimme on that schedule. They might be headed for a fifth place finish in the Big East, which would give them a tough, um, you know, margin or a tough route in that Big East tournament, no matter how you cut it. But one thing that stuck out to me in recent weeks was the fact that they haven't beaten, and you you alluded to this, they haven't beaten a ranked team on the road since I believe it was Memphis back in 2013 or 2014. So at some point, to be an elite team, you have to be able to do that. And looking at their schedule the rest of the way, they don't have an opportunity to beat a ranked team on the road with those teams uh, ahead of them, although that Providence game will certainly be a big game at home. So where do you see this team going from here, beginning with this Seton Hall game? How important it is them? How important is this game against the team that, let's face it, everybody in the country feels that they're better than, but yet they're looking up in the standings at Seton Hall? Yeah, I know. Seton Hall's got one more win than UConn does. Uh, <clears throat> well, obviously, it's to me, it's a must-win Providence a must win. I mean, I would like to see them win out. I think that would put them in a position where they kind of belong as a fourth seed and and have a decent run in the Big East uh, championships down at the Garden. Uh, I, they had Seton Hall beat. They pounded them in the first half. Seton Hall came out, kind of ground them down a little bit, made it hard to score, and they got lucky at the end. They scored off sure. a three pointer at the front at the front of the rim. How that happened, I don't know. You could you could run that scenario a hundred times, and that might not happen again. So, but you know, that being said, stuff happens. You can't get in that position. So, uh, 
yeah, this 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 stretch of games, they're all winnable. I mean, Providence did beat them in Providence because they got to the foul line way more than UConn. That was one reason. Uh, you know, UConn's got to make some adjustments. They need they need to have Tristan Newton playing at a high level because he's the guy that has the ball in his hands most of the time. And he had a good run for about six or seven games here recently. Uh, I think seven games, he was like 28 for 62. We made 31 to 38 free throws. I'm just going over some of these numbers. Uh, he was averaging 13 and a half points a game. Now, the other day at Creighton scored two points, uh, did not take a free throw. Um, you know, he can't have that. They're, they're base guys. They're nucleus people. Uh, Jordan Hawkins, Adama Sonogo, and to me, Tristan Newton have got to be great every night. And if they are, if they are, then UConn could win the whole thing. They could win the Big East tournament. Uh, but if they don't get that, if Sonogo scores 10 instead of his average of 17, if he gets four rebounds instead of seven, which is his average, if Hawkins scores 11 instead of 16 and a half, if Hawkins doesn't make three threes in a game, uh, and I told you about Newton and his numbers, if he doesn't score 12, 13 points and get seven, six, seven assists, they're not at their peak efficiency. So they need that. And uh, most teams do need, you know, a, a nucleus of three people at least to do some of the stuff you need to do, score, rebound, pass, whatever it takes. So getting them all to play great every night, that's what they need from now on. I don't know if it'll happen, but, it, you know, for UConn's sake, I'd like to see it because I think they belong in a four seed situation in that tournament. They're good enough to be there. Uh, but if they don't perform here down these last five games, they probably won't be in that place. Right. And, and at some point, like Bill Parcells said, and, and you were there, you are what your record says you are. So right now, UConn is eight and seven in the Big East. They have five more opportunities to, to get the ship right. Uh, Tristan Newton, you know, he's a guy that you said – uh, really has become their third leading scorer, has two triple doubles uh, this season. No other player in UConn history has done that. So it, it's really a mercurial team at, at some point. And boy, if they can put it all together, they can be dynamite. We'd even talk about Alex Caravan, who no, is, is, you know, it, has become their fourth leading scorer. Probably mm -hmm. right now, in my opinion, is the odds on favorite, although AJ Store from St. John's is coming on strong. Uh, for the Big East freshman of the year. What has it been like to watch Caravan develop this year? He's a fun, fun player to watch. He's a, he's got he's got a great intellect for the game. He uh he does what it takes. He's an unselfish guy, but when it's necessary to knock down a shot, he'll do it for you. Yeah. Georgetown was a perfect example on the road. He had two big threes late in the game. They won by six. He's had a lot of games where he's hit double figures, a lot of games where he's had five assists. A lot of games where he's had seven, eight rebounds. So uh, he, he's he's a freshman. So you're getting what you can from him. But he's playing a lot of minutes now. He's playing 28 minutes, which I don't think Dan Hurley anticipated when the season started. But he's the kind of guy, you know, he's 12th in the league and made threes, almost two a game. Uh, he does a lot of little things. Sometimes the stuff isn't in the – it's not in the, in the stat books that I read all the time. It's mm -hmm. not that. It's like, oh – Caravan made a stop. Caravan got a rebound. Caravan made a great pass for an assist. He just does stuff, you know, that you say to yourself, uh, you know, wow, that guy can really play for as a freshman. And, you know, he'll be around for four years. He's not going anywhere. He's, he's that level of college player that is probably going to be there for four years, which if I'm Dan Hurley, I'm pretty happy about that. 
I would be too. You're, you're taking what you can get out of him and, and Klingon has taken a different uh, approach and, and his minutes are down this year. I'd like to see him play a few more minutes, uh, you know, as the understudy for Sonogo, but you have to earn your minutes out there, Mike. And, and I'm sure it's been tough for him. Uh, but when he gets out there, Donovan Klingon does produce some big numbers. He does. And he, he's playing less than 20 minutes, which is really impressive. I mean, he's second in field goal percentage, over 68%. He's fourth in the league in blocks two a game. Uh, he's had some huge games where he went double-double up against Creighton the first time, 20 and 10. Um, but there's, you know, again, a freshman is learning as he goes. He's going to make mistakes. Sometimes he'll come in and make a couple of quick fouls. Sometimes he'll get beat by a guy who gets to the board quicker than him. He He's not uh, a dominant guy yet, but he could be. On a given night, you might see Klingon just go off. He might get you 10 points and he might get you eight rebounds in 15 minutes. That could happen. So, and it has happened. So there's a lot of things that he does well, but what you're saying is, is we're getting into this, you know, the, the grinding February month for these big East teams. It's, it's war out there. So everything isn't going to go as smoothly as it did in the non-conference for him. You know, he won the MVP of the Portland tournament, the Phil Knight uh, tournament, uh, because he was, you know, getting a lot of alley-oops. He'd get a lot of rebounds. He was blocking three, four shots a game against these non-conference opponents. Good ones, too. Oregon. Hey, Oregon was injured, but they still got a good team. Uh, and we talked about Iowa State, and we also talked about Alabama. He was he was a tremendous player against those teams. So I'm hoping he has a big a big night, uh, this uh, big day against Seton Hall and straight down the, the stretch of games because – He's a big part of their bench. You know, UConn needs bench. They need bench production. And that includes Klingon and includes Calcaterra and Aline and Hassan Diara, too. So they go nine deep. But if nine guys, if the other four guys don't produce, you know, the, the, the burden really is on the starters. So you want that bench strength. And they haven't had that real bench production in the last five or six games, which they had in the opening 14. Yeah, and Creighton learned that last night uh, in the loss to Providence. You need production from your bench. You can't just have your starters. You need your stars to produce, but you need those complimentary players to do it as well. So, Mike Crispino, I can't thank you enough. It's been a pleasure going down memory lane with you and, <laughs> and uh, you know, the kid from East Catholic High School who, who's had quite a broadcasting career, a Hall of Fame career in my book. Uh, thank you so much for taking some time and joining us on the podcast. Brian, I appreciate those compliments. Uh, I am in a couple of Hall of Fames, but they're they're modern. It's East Catholics Hall of Fame in, in Manchester, the city of Manchester, where I kind of grew up in high school. So I'm in a couple of Hall of Fames, but I'm not in Springfield. That that. Yeah. Ain't <laughs> well, maybe someday, Mike. You, you certainly, uh, you know, worked with a lot of Hall of Fame people. So I did. I, I was yeah. lucky in that sense. No question about it. All, all right, right, Mike. Have a great broadcast on Saturday, and and. To all my friends out there, when you're on your way to Franklin Giant, getting a grinder before that game, tune into Mike's pregame and, and listen to him on the way back. You won't be disappointed. Yeah, Franklin Giant. You're right. Good good spot down there in the South End by you. My cousins. My cousins, my uh, family owns that and Get still runs it to this day. So, okay. yeah, when you go in there, tell them you know Brian, okay? I will. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, Brian. All right. Mike Crispino, the pride of East. Catholic High School. Now, there's a guy who knows his way around Central Jersey. Mike, I hope I bump into you sometime up in Connecticut very soon.
What a pleasure that was. All right, let's go around the tri-state now. We talked about Seton Hall and Rutgers off the top. We mentioned UConn there with Mike Crispino. Let's talk about St. John's. I have criticized this team all season long for not defending, for not being able to take a punch and punch back. I've said Mike Anderson should not be brought back next year. I've said all of that. I will say this. This team is playing its best basketball of the season. Where did it come from? I don't know. Andre Curbelo has not played the last two games due to a coach's decision. I'm not saying that that's the reason. I'm not going to put it all on. Oh, Andre Curbelo has been the worst piece of this puzzle. He doesn't belong on this team. No, that's not where I'm going. But something has clicked. Maybe this team has rallied in Curbelo's absence. I don't know what it is, but I will say they have played their best defense. They certainly played their best defense in the win over Providence, holding the Friars to 33% field goal percentage. And then they follow that up with a gutsy, grinding double overtime win at DePaul, a game where they were down 11 points on the road. You talk about taking a punch and punching back. This team is doing everything that they were criticized for not doing for the past three months. They came back from adversity. They showed resolve. DePaul takes the lead. St. John's takes it back. DePaul regains the lead. St. John's claws back, ties the game in the final seconds. And then DePaul gets a three from Jason Terry with under five seconds to go, his only bucket of the game. And it looks like the game's over. DePaul's up three. They're celebrating. St. John's calls timeout, gets the ball over half court, calls timeout again in the half court. And now they have two and a half seconds to get off a three-point shot. And boy, oh boy, did they draw up a play. You could not have drawn up a better play. Coming out of the timeout, everybody's following AJ's store. He's the best three-point shooter on the team. St. John is in a line with the inbounder. Store curls around. The defenders head towards store. Posh Alexander sets the mother of all picks. A beautiful back screen. Dylan Adeyawusu backs up to the three-point line. The pass comes to him in all-in-one motion. Fires. Releases. Follow through. Swish. A three-pointer with .5 seconds left that ties the game. Sends it into overtime. The first overtime was trash. I mean, neither team could hit a field goal. And then in the second overtime, DePaul outscored nine to nothing by St. John's. And the Johnnies pull out maybe their best victory of the season outside of the UConn game. This was fantastic. They showed it all. Big game out of Adeyawusu with a career-high 24 points. A.J. Store continues to get better, continues to show why he was one of the top freshmen in the country, one of the top recruits coming out of high school. In his last seven games, A.J. Store is averaging 13.9 points, 3.9 rebounds, and is shooting 39% from three. Is he the freshman of the year in the Big East? Well, 
It's him. It's Cam Whitmore. And it's certainly Alex Caravan. My vote, because he's been the most consistent all season long, is Alex Caravan. But if Storr continues at this pace, you can make the argument that he deserves Rookie of the Year and not Alex Caravan. And don't look now, but St. John's is now 16-11 and 11 with four games remaining. Even if the Johnnies lose all four regular season games and they lose in the first round of the Big East tournament, if, if, if Mike Anderson finishes 16 and 16, and you know what that means? That means he is guaranteed to not have a losing season in his 21 years of coaching. That's amazing. It may not be enough to keep his job at the end of the year, I think St. John's may have to go on a miraculous run and get to the NCAA tournament. We'll see. Whereas for months, I'm saying he's gone. I still think he won't return, but it's not such a foregone conclusion in my mind. St. John's, at least for two nights, has righted the ship and showed you what they're capable of doing. Now they host 18th ranked Creighton on Saturday at Carneseca Arena. Imagine what that building would be like if they pull off that win against, in my mind, the best team in the Big East. Let's talk about Ryder. The Bronx are the hottest team in the Tri-State. They have won eight straight. They are tied for first place in the MAC with Iona. Hey, Iona's also hot. Let's give the Gales some credit. They've won five straight. They swept the Buffalo tour last weekend at Canisius and at Niagara. But Ryder is scorching hot. And these two teams will play each other on Saturday, March 4th. That is the last game of the regular season. It's at the Bronx Zoo in Lawrenceville, and it could decide the regular season champion in the MAC. But at this point, as we speak, Siena is in the mix as well. It's Ryder. It's Iona and it's Siena. Siena's in third place, just one game back in the lost column. And all of these teams will play each other over the next couple of weeks. Siena has already beaten Iona and Ryder, but they have to go to Ryder on the 24th. And then two days later on the 26th, they go to Iona. So that last week of February and first week of March, one way or another, the MAC regular season title will likely come down to those three games. That is some early March madness right there. And how about Fordham? The Rams won their 20th game of the season last week. Did you catch that? That is significant because Fordham hasn't won 20 games in a season in 32 years. Seton Hall fans, you remember that 91 season. Terry DeHair, Jerry Walker, Gordon Winchester, Elite Eight team. That was also a team that went into Rose Hill and got upset. I know this one still stings. Upset on a last-second buzzer beater by John Prelu. Remember that? Fordham was down two in the final seconds, and Prelu hits a buzzer-beating three to win by one. The fans stormed the court. That's the last time Fordham won 20 games. And do you know who else was on that roster? 
a senior guard by the name of Mike Rice. Yes, that Mike Rice, Rutgers fans. But this Fordham team has an experienced backcourt with a pair of graduate seniors, fifth-year seniors. This team is gritty. They're experienced. Darius Quisenberry recently won over 2,000 career points. And Khalid Moore, the grad transfer from Georgia Tech, he played four years in the ACC out of Archbishop Malloy. That is some backcourt of Moore and Quisenberry. Keith Ergo has it rolling at Fordham. They are currently tied for third, a game behind first place VCU. And this is a huge week for the Rams. They host St. Bonaventure on Wednesday, and they're at VCU on Saturday. After that, the schedule gets easier, much easier, because their four remaining games are against teams that are all below them in the standings. Fordham is not only in position for a top three or four finish, they could challenge for the regular season title. Think about that. This is a team that was predicted 11th in the preseason coaches poll. An afterthought in the A-10. And they have put themselves in position to be regular season champs. Huge week. St. Bonaventure on Wednesday at VCU on Saturday. We'll see where the Rams sit after those games. And that's our show, everyone. If it happens on the Tri-State, we'll be sure to talk about it right here on the Tri-State College Basketball Podcast. Please share this episode and share them all with your friends. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcast. And also, give us a review. We do appreciate the follow. We have a big weekend ahead. Seton Hall at UConn, Creighton at St. John's, Princeton hosting Yale, which could decide the regular season champ, or certainly the winner of that game will be in the driver's seat in the Ivy League. And of course, as I said, Fordham at VCU. A great slate for the weekend. Enjoy the games, everyone. My name is Brian Dean Ellis. So long. <laughs>